Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. All righty, Madigan. Well, it is the first day of Black History Month. It is indeed. Happy Black History Month, Keegan. Thank you so much. The best yet shortest month of the year. So, so misrepresented. It's really, I mean, obviously, but it's horrible. Why? Is there a reason that February, is there a reason that they chose February to be Black History Month? Yeah. Do you know that? I mean, in my head, I feel like it was some white asshole that's like, it's the shortest month, we'll just give it. That's canon in my own brain, but yeah, I'm not like, sure I don't if know. that's actually the reason. Like, I'm sure that there is some kind of bogus reason. But for me, I'm just like, listen, I'm not speaking for all black people as though we're a monolith. But in general, the cold is not our jam. Okay. And February okay. is typically a bad weather month. Mm-hmm. And it's the shortest month of the year. So yeah doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that this should be the month of our people um however it is so (laughs) i mean i will still celebrate it for 31 days i'll I'll celebrate it into march 2nd that's totally fine with me well we always (laughs) do four episodes anyway so it never gets gets ripped off in our book but then they also they present us with an interesting challenge because they do black history month right before women's history month (gasps) yes exactly (laughs) because then it kind of cuts into women's history it's true Mm -hmm. what the heck so we just have to bleed into april is what we have to do yeah i do love though that this kind of starts the time for us in the podcast that we have like not really things planned but we have like these months ahead where we have like a general like we have our general topics already kind of like set up for us we have black history month then we have women's history month and then after that would be coming out month in june or no we usually do we haven't done this in a while but like a motherhood episode of may would be oh, great that's right. and then we have coming out month in june so this kind of starts our like holiday celebrations almost it feels like with the themes of our episodes you know and that's usually helpful for us so that we're not like scrambling three days before we record that's an exaggeration it's usually not three days I mean I feel like it's definitely happened before where we've been like fuck we have to figure something out immediately but yes typically it's a little bit longer than that but it is helpful when you at least have like a general topic to then pick and choose from and I feel like we also think of things throughout the year that we write in the list we do it's just the easiest time for us you know it's great So we are going to start out Black History Month with something that I knew nothing about until like probably a couple years ago, I'd heard a little bit about it. I'd heard it mentioned again recently in another documentary, I think that I was watching. I couldn't remember who put it on the list. Was it it you or me? I feel like it was you who put this on the list. 
Because I think I heard it in something else and I was like, oh, I don't really know anything about that. And so I put it down. And much like a lot of the topics that we discuss during Black History Month or whenever we're talking about something that happened a long, long time ago, I don't know if you had this experience this week, but it was really hard to find things that felt like a full story, something fully factual and something fully from the perspective of the enslaved people within the rebellion. Oh, that was nearly impossible. So yeah. mine is not entirely from that perspective. It has other things added in. But right. it's also important to recognize that that was largely by design. You know, it was it was definitely revisionist history for the most part told through the lens of the quote unquote victors of the situation. You know, um, they went into damage control mode about this. Yes, uh, they did. Pretty much right away. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's really interesting how this story has been passed down because it was seen as, you know, after this rebellion, which we're obviously going to get into the entire thing, but after it happened, um, they made it seem like there was no possible way that this revolt could have possibly been successful. They made it seem like it was just this silly thing. Mm-hmm. There was no way in hell that um, the enslaved rebelli- uh, rebels would actually win when in reality... They had a lot of manpower. A lot of these people had history in fighting in other rebellions mm-hmm. and in wars. They had weapons. They had stolen militia uniforms. Like they were legit and very, very smart and well organized. So and, that and was very close to pulling it off, really. I mean, so close to pulling it off. Like that's why they had to, that's why they had to change the story because there's no way they could tell it as being like, well, we almost got beat, you know? Right, right. I mean, if one thing, which we will discuss as we move through this story, if one Uh thing had been different, then I think that they would have had a very good chance of making it to New Orleans and who knows what would have happened if that would have happened. So we didn't even say what we're talking about today, but (laughs) it is in in our title. We are going to be talking about the 1811 German coast uprising. And I really didn't know very much about this either, which is kind of surprising to me, although in learning a little bit more about the revisionist history that took place and the, you know, kind of like wiping away of all of this, uh, it's not as surprising. There were people living in Louisiana who didn't know about this, but my family is from Louisiana, my, my black family. I've traced, you know, my genealogical roots um, I had black family living in Louisiana in the 1800s oh in my this gosh. in this area. Yeah, um, yeah. So, well, and I it's probably because it wasn't written to be a success. So why would we learn about it? You know what I mean? I think that's why. Like it's just kind of starting to come out now. But I was really interested about learning the history of how the sugar boom even came Mm -hmm. to the United States and how some of these enslaved people that would start the rebellion came to the United States and got all of these ideas. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the sugar boom to start with. So in Louisiana's German coast, what was known as the sugar boom began after the Revolutionary War. In 1780, a formerly enslaved man by the name of Jean St. Malo established a colony for black people in the swamps of New Orleans. So he kind of created this little community of just um, the black people in the area. Spain was still in control of this part of Louisiana at the time, so when they heard of this discovery, the Spanish officials sent a militia who captured Jean St. Malo, who was executed. 
After his execution, Malo became a folk hero in New Orleans. A decade later, during the height of the French Revolution, Spanish officials uncovered another conspiracy hatched by the enslaved at Point Coop. It was planned to occur on Easter weekend, but was shut down before it began. 23 enslaved were executed by hanging, and then their heads were decapitated and displayed on the roads of New Orleans. And the reason I'm saying this is because this will all be seen. This is all kind of things that prelude to the 1811 uprising and some right. things that may have inspired and um, been replicated during well, that time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also an important thing to bring up and we're going to, you know, also talk about the Haitian revolution a little bit, but I do think it's important to bring these things up because as part of the, you know, kind of wiping away of this event, uh, they really want you to believe that it was kind of this spontaneous ragtag group of people yeah. and not people who had been planning revolutions and rebellions for a very long time. I mean, and yes. there are even ones that we probably won't talk about here, but especially throughout that region, um, because it was so ethnically diverse, uh -huh. uh, it, throughout that region, there had been small uprisings happening for a while. So the right. whispers between the plantations, whenever these people would gather as they would uh, oftentimes um, on Sundays whenever they were permitted to be off of work a lot of these enslaved people would gather and share stories and information so when there were these kind of small little bitty um, uprisings or rebellions happening that were usually squashed pretty quickly yeah. um, it emboldened people to want to do something more right so these actually occurred in um in other parts of the world as well. So uh, some of these were happening in France, and then there was the Haitian Revolution, which occurred between 1790 and 1804, which is a really fucking long time. Mm -hmm. That is a 14-year uh, rebellion, and that actually led to Haiti gaining independence, I guess you would say. How, well, I, don't, I wrote independence, but I don't know if that's really the word. It was basically... And I don't believe it was all of Haiti. I did I did skim an article uh, about this, but I don't believe it was all of Haiti. But there was a region of Haiti that um, in which the enslaved people did revolt against their captors and eventually established an independent black state. So okay, it yes. wasn't the entire country, country. but it was there that was area. Yes, they basically said like we have claimed this area as an independent black state, and so. Right. I mean, and really, another thing to highlight is that at that point in Haiti, the black people outnumbered the black enslaved people outnumbered the white people in Haiti like five to one. So yeah. they had numbers on their side, which is kind of the same thing that we start to see uh, in the Louisiana area as Definitely. well. And after this, people who were not part of that um successful revolt but people in the surrounding areas near that area in Haiti were sold into slavery in Louisiana so the story well that's what I was gonna say because a lot of these other countries and areas were no longer producing sugarcane and they no longer had the slave labor uh, also the ports to the US colonies and the Americas were opened up as well to be sending more enslaved people from Africa from Haiti from all over 
all over, you know, parts of the world. So Louisiana kind of took on um, sugarcane. They were really into cotton and indigo before, but then when there was kind of a lull in the sugarcane market, they were like, we're going to take that on. And we're also going to take all of your enslaved people as well. So by 1802 in Louisiana and in this German coast, 70 sugar plantations produced over 3,000 tons of sugar every year. It was insane. And it should be said that, especially in Haiti, kind of what spurred on the birth of that rebellion in Haiti was because whenever, in order to acquire that much sugarcane, they were working the enslaved people in an incredibly inhumane way. I mean, nothing about slavery, of course, is humane, but it was so bad that the... um, the mortality rate for enslaved people in Haiti was significantly higher. The lifespan of an enslaved person in Haiti was significantly shorter because they wanted to get such a large quantity production yes. of sugar. And they were inspired by that in Louisiana as well. So they, they didn't just take on the sugar cane. They took over a lot of the really brutal working conditions that were being done in other countries to get that kind of success as well. So just like you said, you know, these longer hours and more brutal punishments mm-hmm. were were incredibly damaging to these people and they didn't obviously it was more so about having you know the youngest the healthiest the strongest so it really didn't matter if these lives were being cut short it only mattered that they were getting oh the yeah product of course and, and again there were so many i mean they they were bringing over people in the transatlantic slave trade at such a rate that i mean it was very much they were fairly disposable. I do want to say before we move on, um, the German coast is a, because I didn't know, and again, my family Uh is from the area, uh, the German coast is a fertile agricultural region that's upriver from New Orleans. So it's about 60 miles outside of New Orleans proper up the river. Um, Mm. So about away from, like about 60 miles from the French Quarter, essentially. Okay. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Governor William C.C. Claiborne because he is a big player in this as well. So after the U.S. negotiated the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, both Marquis de Lafayette and James Monroe... Hamilton, hello, uh, declined the role of territorial governor. So Thomas Jefferson turned to fellow Virginian William C.C. Claiborne. And Claiborne really struggled as governor of, uh, I don't, I mean, it must have been of all of Louisiana there. I don't know why, or no, of uh, New Orleans, governor of? Governor of Louisiana, the Louisiana Territory. So this was before um, Louisiana was actually a state. A state, yeah. So So, Claiborne, also another reason why they wanted him there was because he was really pushing for statehood so yeah it was a large goal it was a big goal of his you know yeah and he struggled a lot because there was such a vast diverse population in louisiana they had a very large native american population uh french spanish haitian and he didn't speak french or spanish so he struggled a lot in that area and he also wasn't used to the number of free people of color that louisiana had and he didn't really know how like his brain didn't comprehend the fact that there could be freed Uh, people of color in the area, and he wasn't a big fan of that. In the overall territory of Orleans from 1801 to 1811, the free black population nearly tripled to 5,000, so he was very overwhelmed. 
French Creole residents who had lived there for a long time were really pissed about how Claiborne was handling uh, the territory and treating its citizens, so they complained to Washington, D.C. about numerous items of contention. By 1805, a delegation led by Jean-Noël Destrehan went to Washington to complain about the oppressive and degrading form of territorial government. President Madison, of course, denied their requests and sided with Claiborne. With the spread of the idea of freedom from the French and the Haitian revolutions, Europeans, European Americans began to worry about the enslaved uprisings as well. So, yeah, so let's let's set it up a little bit. So you have you have kind of the understanding of what the political tensions and things were like in the Louisiana area at that time. So let's go into a little bit more about specifics. So Charles Deland. Uh, was born around 1789 on the plantation of Jacques Deland, and yep. well, he was he was born in in Haiti, which I think is really well, important to, to well, mention. It, it, accounts differ on that because there's no actual oh. record of him having been born in Haiti. Like we don't know oh. um, necessarily if he was born in Haiti because they didn't keep Jacques Delon didn't keep good records. Um, oh. However, because I thought it was really interesting because then I went into like math mode and I was like, well, then he was born just two years before the Haitian revolution began. So he was like, brought up within that culture of like rebellion and revolution in Haiti. See, I kind of think even if he was born in Haiti, it seems to me as though he was taken to the plantation of Jacques Delong fairly young is what it would seem like to me. So I'm not sure if he was actually brought up in Haiti or born in Haiti. People kind of yeah. make those connections because he did basically preach the gospel of the Haitian revolution to to other enslaved people. Yeah, um, I mean I want to say that I read in some articles that he lived in Haiti for quite a while and was like not he was young, like not an older man or like a full-grown man or anything, but I want to say maybe like 11 or 12-ish. Some people well, are saying that he maybe second. came over. Are you are you fact-checking? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so here is what I found, and this is just from Wikipedia. It says, okay. contrary to many published articles, we do not know if Jacques Delong ever brought Charles over from St. Dominique, Saint after, Dominique the, yeah. after the revolt there. There is no record of Jacques ever having lived in St. Dominique. There is no record of Jacques buying Charles before he died in 1793. And he has a continual doc documented presence in Louisiana from the time he was 17. So yeah, see, because that's kind of where I got it, because I think maybe that when you just mentioned 17, maybe that's kind of where other historians have written, like when he was like a teenager or something was when he came over, because I, I found that really interesting if he in a world where let's say he did live in Haiti during that time, like I found that really interesting. But Clearly, yeah, I just I'm not we sure will where never it, know. <laughs> I'm not sure where it came from because it doesn't look as though Jacques or Charles there's any documented evidence that it's they probably there. it's probably just um it probably fit in with the story really well. Like it kind of sounds like maybe that was added folklore to him where maybe that was just like a story that was perpetuated about him being in Haiti during that time to kind of add to the legend of what he did yeah, in that's the German kind of, coast. You know, that's kind of where my mind went. And yeah, so yeah. 
we don't exactly know because again slave records are so hard to track down right uh, that it gets it gets very difficult but he what we do know was that he was born on the plantation of Jacques Delong wherever that was at the uh-huh. time of his birth we're not sure um and he was described as a quote creole mulatto slave and he was sold to Manuel Andre or Andre when he was about 17 years old so the other thing about Charles Delon is that his father was white and mm-hmm. his mother was black. I yes, tend so to his, assume his father raped his mother and he I, is I, a product of rape. Yeah, that's I tend what to I wrote assume as well. That. I assume that Jacques Delon is his father, but yes. we don't know that because of course there's no official record, but that is what I would tend to assume. I but, mean, to me, that part was written in bold pink letters obvious but well you know this is speculation it could have been someone else but i mean we don't know for sure but we know that that was a very common practice at the time so when you hear that there was you know that he had a white father and an enslaved mother you can kind of only assume um that it was possibly delong himself or at least maybe someone that worked for delong and we know it was not a loving uh conception and relationship that he was brought out of which always makes me feel Sad. That's that's psychological damage that I think people don't understand that you can experience before you're even born. It's just well, hard. I think Charles Delong probably had Delon probably had a lot of of psychological damage because he yeah. was sold to Manuel Andre when he was 17, and because of his light complexion from being biracial, he did have preferential treatment within the Andre home, which he quickly rose to become Andre's right-hand man and overseer. So he was dealing out punishment to other enslaved people on the plantation, and he was hated by the other enslaved people on the plantation because he was so brutal an overseer. However, he was so brutal an overseer because he was trying to maintain this facade and maintain this trust from the, you know, white ruling slave owning class and Andre in particular. So definitely, he, he definitely started to hate the slave owning class in his 17 years uh, on the Delon plantation. And again, it's unclear as to where he picked up the, the tale of the Haitian Revolution, whether it was something that he had experienced in his own life, or if it was something that was picked up because there were so many um Haitian enslaved people who had yeah. been sold into that area who told the tale of what they had experienced. I remember that time. reading some, I remember reading somewhere in my research as well that there were like, you know, some would have copies of, you know, the story of the rebellion mm-hmm. and things like that. So I think that, you know, especially in this area, having enslaved people from so many different parts of the world who have experienced so many different things too. It makes sense that, you know, those stories would be passed on. So in the autumn of 1810, Delon met up with two other men, um, Cook and Kamana, and they were both recent arrivals from West Africa. And both of these men likely had military experience from their time um, in, in West Africa before they were brought over. So Charles Delon told the men about the Haitian Revolution and how the people of Haiti had slaughtered their captors and established an independent black state. Uh-huh. And so that's when these three men are the three who were kind of the catalyst for what would become um, the German Coast Uprising. So they yeah. started planning 
this revolt. And many enslaved people in the region during this time were permitted to gather on Sundays in what was called the Congo Square. So actually, I mean, they weren't permitted to gather per se, but they were given the day off usually on Sunday. And it naturally became a thing that they started doing. And it also really speaks to how much the slave owning class in this time period, the white people basically in this area um, took these people. They, they, they thought that these people were so below them that they weren't capable. Yeah. That they underestimated them. They underestimated them entirely. Like, because these people outnumber you, you're treating them like garbage. And then you don't think that they're enough of a threat. It wasn't until after this, this revolt that they started limiting the ways in which, you know, fellow slaves could gather together in large numbers. Definitely. Partially because that's how it got the word spread from plantation to plantation that like, hey, this is a thing that's going to go down. Right. And, well, and that's and how every well organized. That's how every rebellion started. You know, they're they're stupid. We well, and they and the, the thing is, is it's like they have taken away their ability for education and for, you know, g- giving them the, the opportunity to have the chance to revolt and uprise. So in their minds, it's probably like, yeah, like, what are they gonna, like? We're we're not giving them any of the tools to be able to do that. So how would it even happen? You know, I'm sure it wasn't even a worry for them. I don't think it was. They literally, which is so stupid, especially (laughs) given what had just happened in Haiti for them to think like this could never happen here. You know, and as we said, of course, there were some people who were concerned about that in, Mm -hmm. in Louisiana, especially or in New Orleans, especially. But a lot of these people who lived in these rural communities and these plantations really even after the uprising began which we'll discuss weren't even as concerned as they should have been no because they underestimated these people because they saw them as less than human yes so they're like they don't have the capability to go against us you know they're not smart enough they're not strong enough exactly um, to plan something like and some of the enslaved people who had heard about the uprising even went to their slavers and were like hey this is gonna happen you know like Mm -hmm. a lot of these slavers were warned ahead of time and some of them did flee and Mm -hmm. you know protect themselves and some of them them didn't um like andrea i think or no it wasn't andrea it was another one that i've written where he had heard about the the rebellion happening and he was just like no i'm gonna stay put so it really was just kind of like it depended on the person and whether or not they they bought that this was actually going to happen and then it would be a threat you know right yeah well i mean yeah okay so (laughs) festivities were in full swing prior to carnival uh in early january 19 which was kind of like uh they were kind of celebrating mardi gras right yeah yeah it's basically mardi gras so it was early january 1811 and this kept a lot of the white people in the area distracted and it also allowed a lot of the enslaved people extra time to gather and it was also around this time that the governor of louisiana william claiborne had sent most of the military troops at his disposal to Baton Rouge to secure um, the military annexation of Spain from Florida. So mm. this this so left had New a- Orleans defenseless, basically. Yes, and definitely. that, I mean, it was, again, they're trying to make you <laughs> believe that these enslaved people were stupid, when in, rea- in reality, like, they had 
planned this entire thing. They yeah. they knew what was going on. They knew that the military presence in New Orleans was going to be almost nothing. Yeah. And they planned their rebellion around that. It mm-hmm. was all by design. Beautiful. So the, the timing was perfect. Perfect timing, definitely. Well, it was on the night of January 8th, 1811, when the rebellion began. So let's see. The uprising began on the plantation owned by Manuel Andre on the east side of Mississippi. And that was the plantation that Charles Delon was living on. Mm -hmm. It was the Woodland uh, Plantation. And so on that night, Delon and 25 other enslaved people armed with axes and knives used to harvest sugar cane Mm -hmm. broke into the house. And they went to Manuel Andre first. Yes. But he woke up saw Charles Delon standing over him. <laughs> I do not know. Uh, there, I mean, of course, there's not a lot of information. Like, I don't know how he got out of this situation alive. But yeah. somehow, well, I this man think, managed to escape. Yeah, I think that they... I, I wonder if they thought that he had been injured enough that he wasn't going to make it. That was kind of... I kind of figured that maybe they thought that he had been beaten enough that he would die of his injuries. I don't know if they anticipated the fact that he was going to live. Regardless of what they thought, this was the biggest mistake that they made um, during this revolt. They should have... Finished him off. (laughs) That he was dead because this is what... um, this is what caused their downfall, yes. ultimately, unfortunately. Well, and they made they made Andrew even more motivated and angry because they killed his son, Gilbert. So yes. this gives Andrew even more, you know, intent to want to bring this down, obviously. Yes. And so Manuel Andre is very wounded. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. They stabbed him. He was he was pretty wounded yeah but he manages to make it to the river he gets in a canoe and he paddles to the west bank of mississippi and once he's there he bursts into the home of a plantation owner named james perret and he tells him what's going down yes exactly prepare yourselves which gives you know a lot of these plantation owners on like notice right yes. that they wouldn't have had before they lose a little bit of that element of surprise that was on their side yeah and this was their first stop as well so while they're continuing this rebellion there is already another plan going to try to bring it down so while Andrew is bloodily trying to make his way to the other plantation charles delon and his feather and his fellow rebels go and take pieces of Andre's militia uniform. And this, like I said earlier, uh, was something that happened in multiple rebellions before. Mm -hmm. And this is a way to, you know, legitimize this war, this battle that was happening. So it wasn't that they were just wearing their everyday clothes and their, you know, the clothes given by their slavers. Mm -hmm. They were actually wearing very official military uniforms. And Mm -hmm. there were also people that said that, you know, they were marching with drums and, you know, they had a very official kind of air about them because they stole shit. Love it. Right. They very much wanted to, they did not want to appear as like brigands, right? They wanted to appear as a unified, they wanted people to know we are a unified front. This was something that we planned. We're revolutionaries. And they did take this page directly out of, um, you know, the Haitian revolution. Yeah. Because that's what they did. And there were drawings of, of that that I'm sure circulated. Those stories circulated. And while they were in the Andrew home, you know, they not only 
got the militia uniforms. They also found guns. Uh-huh. And this is something that they would do as they went, you know, as they went along to different plantation homes. You know, yeah. they would start taking weapons and stuff like that. So no longer was it just axes and knives. Now they are armed with actual guns. Exactly. And not only are they collecting more and more weapons and, you know, military uniforms along the way, they're also collecting more and more people who are joining the rebellion uh, to the point where Wikipedia said that anywhere between 10 to 25 percent of any given plantations enslaved population joined in on the revolution, which is a lot. So as they're moving down up or down the coast first, I think they were moving. I think it was down down the coast so but along the river headed towards new orleans okay so I, but i think it is south but i'm not sure i'm not sure either so let's just say as they're moving down sure they're or collecting along, yeah. or, or as they're moving along that's a great way of putting it uh, <laughs> we, don't they, we don't know they are you know they're banding together more and more people more and more weaponry more and more strength as well but Like we said, as this is going on, Andrea is also warning other people and they are also beginning to set up their own militia as well. Right. So, you know, like you said, there was a large number of the enslaved population who joined in. They estimate that by the end of the day, it was about one fourth total of the enslaved population of the German coast had joined them. So they were about 500 strong within a day. And so you can kind of just picture it. It's all of these, you know, newly emboldened enslaved people. They've got drums. They've got guns. They've got torches. They've got this mob mentality going. (laughs) And as they should. And they're headed to New Orleans and they're screaming freedom or death. along the way and they are you know burning down plantations as they go Mm -hmm. so like you said word of the uprising had now spread and there were a lot of white slave owners who were fleeing their homes and making for the city but there was one and I wanted to tell this story and it might be the same one you have there was one particularly cruel planter named Trepigny and um, he was said to have an enslaved boy named Gustav that he kept as a quote pet on a leash Um, (sighs) he would keep him on uh, on a leash on his front porch throwing him food scraps and treating him like a dog essentially I say all of that so that you have an idea of what kind of person this was yeah Uh, and he was warned by a faithful loyal um, person in his household that this was happening and that he should flee to the city and he refused to leave his home. He basically scoffed at this idea and so he sat on his porch and waited and when he saw the mob arriving, he began to shoot at them but they were too far away for him to do any damage. So Cook, which was um, that West African man that we mentioned earlier, he managed to sneak up the back door of Trepanier's house, creep up behind him and bury an ass in his skull. So he fucking did. Yeah. Took took him out. And we can only assume that other, you know, slave owners who offered a lot of resistance or refused uh, to flee or attempted to fight the rebels probably received a similar fate. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you're not running and you're there, I mean, that's their that's their objective right now is to get rid of you. So, yeah, I'm sure that that wasn't an isolated incident where this happened. But I'm very glad that we have that story because I think that it displays, you know, the arrogance of these and, and narcissism, you know, just these cruel, cruel people, uh, you know, trying to stand their ground and not realizing the power and the strength behind the people that they've been mistreating for so long. Even though I, I doubt that these 
rebels knew maybe this particular story or what was happening to this boy in particular Mm -hmm. it is satisfying to hear that that full story to know that there was um a lot of I don't want to say good because people were killed. So it sounds weird to say that. But there was good that came out of this. Well, the thing is, yes, of course. I mean, this always when you're talking about things like this and you're talking about people dying oftentimes in a cruel manner. I mean, getting yeah. an axe to the skull is is a bad way to go, I'd say. Not my and not my way that I would that I would want, you know. However, I mean, there is a maybe somewhat sick satisfaction in hearing stories like this because you can't treat an entire group of people as subhuman. All they want is equality and all they want are their rights. And had you not been treating them as animals, disposable, um, then we wouldn't be in this situation. Like, yeah, don't it's put karma. People, <laughs> right. You don't put people in a situation to have to kill you for their independence. Definitely. And then be surprised when it happens. Um, and again, like, yeah, the pure arrogance and hubris in sitting on your front porch when an army of 500 armed people is coming your way to think that you're going to be able to fight them off or you have any kind of authority right that you're somehow impervious to to any sort of injury or harm yeah it is it's pretty crazy uh they also went to the mulion plantation which was the largest and wealthiest wealthiest plantation in the german coast and there they also picked up a lot of people to join the rebellion as well and they destroyed the mulion plantation which is great Bye. Bye So word had spread to New Orleans at this point and the white people were panicking. They're freaking out. They were clutching their pearls. They were tearing them off. Their hair was on fire. And, you know, Governor Claiborne, this will sound familiar from last summer, Governor Claiborne issued a 6 p.m. curfew for black men in the city Mm -hmm. and then ordered that all bars in the city be closed. He's like, board them up. Board Um, up the bars. Because most of the army was preoccupied, you know, with the situation in Florida, Claiborne could only scrape together a militia of about 100 volunteers to go up against this army of enslaved people, which was five times as many in number. So it's like 100 militiamen against 500 of the others. So the 100 volunteers marched up to meet the revolt. And along the way, they picked up stragglers of fleeing slave owners or planters who agreed to join them. Yeah, I had I had written down that by nightfall, General Wade Hampton and Governor Claiborne sent two groups of volunteer militia, 30 regular troops and a detachment of 40 seamen to fight the rebels. I don't know what they yeah. mean by regular troops, especially because those troops were in Florida. So I don't know if maybe some of those were making their way back to uh, that wouldn't make any sense it would take too long so i don't know well it's it's possible that not every troop you know not every soldier went to florida like they could have kept a small number behind to help protect the city they just didn't think they were going to need that many so maybe they only kept a handful you know because i'm assuming also governor claiborne probably had people there protecting him yeah yeah so i mean definitely nothing in comparison to the rebels that were coming their way but there was still they were able to round up you know quite a few people in a short amount of time particularly being that their military was not in the state so. Right. 
Yeah, so DeLong, along with um, the others, had decided to stop for the night at the Kenner and Henderson Plantation, which, fun fact, is where the New Orleans airport stands today. Oh, funny. (laughs) And while they were there, the militia was coming, you know, from the other side, and they were like, okay, we're going to ambush them in the night Uh uh, while they're at this plantation. When they attacked, however, they found that the camp had been almost completely abandoned. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Europeans at the time looked at this decision by Delon to fall back and not engage as a cowardly act that he was like running. Yeah. However, this was actually a calculated West African tactic that had been used um, very often in wars, which is to me a no brainer. I mean, I feel like the European way of fighting, you know, like the way we fought the to Revolutionary slowly War, move forward toward to each slowly other. advance, yeah, and all of that is is such a European way of of looking at like and it civ- makes civil war. It makes no sense to me. Whenever I watch old war movies, uh, I'm just like, how does this? work like you're just slow it's just chaos they have this mentality that like war can be civil like there's civility we have we have rules and and like a what's the word i'm looking for like a like a a acknowledgement yes exactly like an acknowledgement (laughs) of each other that like we don't do certain things but but that is first of all war is not civil no all is fair in love and war baby and it just makes sense. So this this West African tactic, which was likely suggested by Cook and Kamano, who had, you know, again, fought wars, uh, they were like, why fight a battle that you're unprepared for when you can retreat, lure the enemy into a battle on your own terms yeah. on higher ground? And so that's what they were planning to do. So they m- start moving back the other direction. The militia is following them the other direction, and it's not looking good for the militiamen at this point. They're vastly outnumbered, and the rebels are seeking higher ground. So they're like, we're going to strike you on our terms. Yep. However, I told you this shit was going to bite you in the ass. Mm-hmm. Manuel Andre, along with 85 slave owners, had come back across the river on the other side. Yeah. So basically what that means is that the army of enslaved people were now sandwiched between the militia on one side and this slave owner army on the other side. And they didn't know that the the slave owner army was there. Exactly. That was something that, I mean, in my head, I think they really thought that Andrew was dead. I I would assume that they wouldn't leave unless they thought he was gone because otherwise there would be some sort of knowledge of some sort of threat that could happen because... This was a surprise. This was, you know, 80 some, 80, you know, 85, did you say? Men, I have 80 written, so I don't know. Uh, men that, like yeah, that. that were coming from the other direction. So when they were moving the other way, they were still slowly, slowly being moved inward upon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. And it was still, so this entire time also, to just throw another wrench into the, the plot, it was raining. So there was this torrential downpour that was happening during this. Of this course whole it was time. raining. So, and if you were writing a Hollywood script for this, you know that even if it wasn't raining, whoever the script writer was raining. would make it raining because that That's right. it makes for a great battle scene. It yes, really does. Up the stakes. Yes. Up the There's stakes. mud everywhere, um, blood everywhere. But it really did cause an issue for them because they were taken off guard. So they're planning their attack on this militia. So they're moving backwards, planning on like, okay, when we get to a point where we can have the advantage, we're going to attack them. Yeah. And if that had happened, I really do think they would have stood a pretty strong they chance. They would have definitely of, stood a chance against, mm-hmm. I mean, 500 versus, let's say, maybe a little over 100. 
Mm-hmm. And both sides have weapons. You know, I would say right. that that's yeah. uh, that the odds were in their favor. Absolutely. The odds were absolutely in their favor. But unfortunately, they were surprised by this group of 85. And they don't know exactly what happened next. But there's a lot of speculation that because of the rain and because these people were unexpected that they happened upon, um, it obscured their vision. And what we do know is that the army of the enslaved people ran out of ammunition fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And because of this, the slave owners began slaughtering as many black people as they could. And soon the militiamen had caught up on the other side and did the same. So it was just... It was just yeah. mayhem. I had read that within a half an hour, 40 to 45 rebels were killed and the remainder escaped into the woods and swamps. But of course, because there were so many other, you know, white slave owners and militia members out there, a lot of them were found and captured and brought back to be interrogated, tortured mm-hmm. and then executed. Yeah, so of that 500, you know, uh, only a handful were taken prisoner that first day. Uh-huh. Cook and Kamana being a part of that number, Delon was nowhere to be found. So they spent two days combing the nearby swamps with bloodhounds until they found him and captured him. And when they did find him, uh, rather than being interrogated, it's almost like these militia men or, you know, these s- slave owners who had formed this militia, they basically told Andre, like, he killed your son. You can do whatever you want to him. So he cut off Delon's arms, shot him, and then threw him into a fire. Yeah. And that was the end of Charles Delon. Um, mm. But Cook and Kamana and 20 others were put on trial. And Cook proudly admitted to um, killing... What's his Tra- face? Trapanier or whatever. Uh, Trapanier, yes. Yeah. yeah. He, he proudly admitted to... To killing him and others did also proudly admit to their part yeah. in the op- uprising as well. I mean, like they said, it was like freedom or death. Exactly. Well, and with freedom or death, this is the part that really hurt me was that a lot of the captured enslaved people were sent back to their slavers, which honestly, I would rather be put to trial and death at that point after everything that they've been through. And their whole slogan being freedom or death, being brought right back to your slavers right. is so because- sad. Here's the thing, even though I I feel like maybe I misspoke earlier when I said that these people found them to be disposable. They did in one respect, like we said, the the death rate was very high in exchange for sugar, but it's capitalism, right? So everything has to be weighed. The reason why their lives were disposable is because the benefit to the amount of sugar that they were bringing in um, was more important to them at that time. But the reason why... Not all of them were executed on site, although a good number of them were killed by firing squad. Uh-huh. Um, but the reason why a handful of them were returned to their slavers is because they still had they work are, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's money. Yeah, like there are there. Well, it'd be you like can't, throwing away money. Yeah, you can't. They're their workforce. You can't lose all of your. You know what would be like employees, I guess, in a perfect world. So they had to still have their workers there, and to ensure that their sugarcane company would continue to run. You know, so and I can only imagine, probably, and this is just speculation, right? And so we have no way of knowing this, but I imagine that a lot of them probably would rather have died than be subjected not only to go back to the conditions that they were working mm-hmm. under. But also whatever 
punishment that surely was doled out. Yeah, uh, it was it was definitely brutal. These executions were not civil executions whatsoever. A lot of times these people were tortured. Uh, their bodies were cut up. A lot of times they were decapitated. Yes. There were mm-hmm. over a hundred heads that were placed on pikes down the German coast after this happened. Like it's it's such gross Game of Thrones fear mongering tactics that were so so rampant during the time. When you say like a hundred heads on spikes I really want to put it in perspective because like I said earlier, the French Quarter was about 40 to 60 miles from the Woodland Plantation. Uh These 100 beheaded heads that were put on spikes were along the river from the Woodland Plantation to the French Quarter. So you're talking 40 to 60 miles. Yes. Of imagine that, like imagine driving 40 or 60 miles and it's it's heads no. along the river. And this was Claiborne, like Claiborne, the governor, it was him and the planters who decided that that's what they would do to dissuade future uprisings. Um, so I it's hard because, you know, Claiborne has a street named after him, a major street yeah. in Louisiana. A lot of these um, slave owners who owned a lot of these plantations, let a lot of these plantations are named after that we've mentioned today. They have cities and towns named well, after and them this in is, Louisiana. And this is probably a big reason for why Claiborne even began to be somebody of stature in the population because he wasn't seen I don't it doesn't seem like he was seen as a very popular governor of the territory before this happened but it seems like he really took this as a political opportunity to change his perception by the people you know he he was suddenly portraying himself as a strong governor and leader who you know led a successful attack against a rebellion mm-hmm. you know i think that he mm-hmm. used used this story in the beginning of kind of, you know, his origins of becoming a political leader as a way of kind of upping his status. Right. And I I do want to point that out because I feel like so often when we're talking about the founding fathers, right, I understand that things are nuanced and there are shades of gray and in everything. Like, I, I understand that. But we oftentimes look at these founding fathers as... We never want to say anything bad about them. Anytime someone brings up that they owned slaves, very often people will just push it aside and say, well, you know, they were a product of their time or whatever. Or look at all the good Uh, things they did. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to really highlight like what what these people did. I mean, Claiborne said, put human heads on pikes so that we can continue to use people as free labor for our gain because also the next year louisiana gained statehood the next year and it new orleans became the largest slave market in the united states Mm -hmm. that's who you're dealing with here and i understand like claiborne isn't a quote founding father the same way we think of Jefferson or Washington right. or any of these other people, but he did kind of act in that same way. And it was on a Thomas smaller Jefferson scale. Who put yeah. Him. It was Thomas Jefferson who put him there. It was James Madison that, w- that, you know, backed him up. It was Lafayette, you know, all the members of Hamilton cast, well, not the cast, not the people in the cast, never mind. But um, all well, Hamilton didn't own slaves, so we can give him that. At did least. you see though, that there were records that came out recently that are saying otherwise? 
Yeah. I did not. Yeah, I'm going to look for it because I saw it when I was nannying and T and I, you know, bond over Hamilton. That's like our thing. And so I read that and I like interrupted his schoolwork and I was like, Theo, I have to read I'm this gonna, to you. It, it, I'm going to need to read that because I thought that he did advocate for abolition. He did, I but was there wearing, was something, like, I believe it wasn't that he necessarily owned people himself it sounds like he was in the business of um helping other people procure enslaved people from what i can remember i read this back in like the spring so i'm gonna i'll google it when we get off this recording and try to find that article but yeah there was some sort of paperwork that was implying that he had something to do with slavery well that's anyway for another anyway time. <laughs> yeah so but what i was gonna say about claiborne you know we think of these founding fathers as being like you know just like we talk about government now like the real like the biggest figures like who was the president who was in charge of all of these really major things but just like now you know it's the it's the local governments it's the small governments that we're building you know especially at this time when um we weren't united yet. These are, you know, colonies in different areas that were territories. So I think Claiborne, in a lot of ways, you know, he swayed so much power in that area. And because of that, that's why we have the slave history that we do in New Orleans and things like that, because we had leaders like him that were in charge of these areas. Right. I mean, if this had gone differently, imagine how different the landscape would have been. I mean, I, I think my family was already in in the United States at that point. Uh, yeah. Most of, of my family was already in the United States at that point. But my family were slaves in the New Orleans area. Yeah. Like, if this hadn't happened, if we hadn't had the largest slave market in the United States that was bringing people over from Africa, how different would our country have looked? How different would it have been um, if yeah. maybe this... this revolt had been successful how different yeah. would things have would been? this how different would it would this have inspired other other rebellions i mean I, there were so many other rebellions but would this have inspired more successful ones would this have spurred the end of slavery quicker i don't know you know it's i i, I know and it really the most upsetting part about this story is that they really were set up for nothing but success like everything you know, now knowing the full story and not just the side of the victors, knowing the strength and the knowledge that they had on their side, it's so upsetting that the story had to end with their defeat and the wiping out of a very large black population in New Orleans. Right. Yeah, it, it absolutely did. And it did have after effects. You know, we were talking about, I actually think it would be really interesting to do an entire episode on like the noir codes and things that happened in new orleans specifically around creole people yeah um and in relation to black people because it's a very very interesting culture but it did change the way that even free black people were seen mm -hmm. in new orleans proper right like it changed everything this this revolt changed the relations yeah. between even freed black people in the city and um well and white people. yeah the racial tensions i'm sure were magnified by you know a thousand percent after that you know mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there there was more distrust more fear between the two communities where i can see that you know being a freed 
black man or woman in the area would not be easy after something like this occurred. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, despite the fact that, you know, despite the size of the rebellion, it was not covered in history books, of course. Yeah. And tales were largely passed down orally through generations of black and Creole people in Louisiana. So it was kind of an oral tradition. They were saying even into the 1920s, people were talking about how their grandparents had been involved in, in this in That's some so way cool. or lived on plantations. Yeah, where where this had happened. Um, the Whitney Plantation in St. John the Baptist Parish opened in t- 2014, which is one of my ultimate goals to go to the Whitney Plantation mm-hmm. because... Unlike a lot of other plantations that are still open for tours, a lot of other plantations are very gone with the wind style, mm. focusing on the antebellum South and um, the lives of this white of people. the slaveholders. Yeah, right. And and occasionally, you know, they might take you into one of the cabins where the enslaved Ugh, people lived. That would um, be but in general devastating to witness. Right. Right. In general, they're mostly talking about the lives of white people. But the Whitney Plantation uh, is owned by black people. They bought it, I believe. And they're the first plantation museum in the country that is dedicated to the slave experience exclusively. Wow. And um, the Whitney Plantation has a memorial and information to commemorate the 1811 slave uprising. I believe they even have, which is very disturbing to see, but I believe it's there that they have the statues. They have an entire like statue structure of heads on mm. pikes. Um, and since 1995, the African American History Alliance of Louisiana has led an annual commemoration at Norco in January every year. Is that the where is they, that the re- reenactment? No, not quite. Okay, because okay, so, I was watching videos so of the reenactment. Me too. Okay, <laughs> yeah, me too. I watched. I watched that video as well. So that is that is different. But it, the nineteen ninety five one does have descendants of members of the revolt. Typically, oh, will come. So um, cool. We need to take a. We need to take field trips when this is over. Like I think you and I oh, yes. like need to oh, like God, find yes. places like this. And then go and then record episodes about what we saw. A hundred percent. I still have family in the we area. We need to do this. Franklin. I would. We can go. Love for sure. to go here and experience that. Me that too. sounds amazing. We should go to the Whitney Plantation. Let's do I've it. Always wanted to. So when this is over and we can travel again, a hundred percent would love to go on a trip. I say Road trip. let's do it. Yeah, or. Maybe we because it's very far. <laughs> true, true. It would probably be cheaper just to get like a Southwest ticket and fly. <laughs> um, but in 2015, artist Dred Scott, who that is not his name, he changed it because uh, I was like, wow, that's interesting. He was, Of course, he was going to grow up to be a, an artist know, activist with a name like Dred Scott. Yeah. But he did change it to be Dred Scott um, after that case. Uh-huh. Uh, and he began organizing a massive reenactment of the uprising. It is a 26-mile walk, two-day event. Mm-hmm. And it took place in November of 2019. And it is wild. I wish I'd known about yeah. it. Because I was like, man, I, I would have tried to go like that. It looks incredible. like it looks like the energy of a protest on steroids. Well, they put a million dollars into yeah. it because it is a full reenactment in that um, they got managed to get 500 people from across the country mm-hmm. who wanted to participate. They 
I, I think they planned it for like a year or two because they got authentic costumes. Yeah. Like everyone is in costume. They have drummers. They have, you know, reenactment swords and axes and Wait, guns. Wait, say that word again. Swords? Do you say swords? Swords? Okay, you said swords this time. I swear the first two times you said swords. I I may have. Okay. I don't Sorry, know. it's like when people That's say possible. it's like when people say hanger instead of hanger. It drives me crazy. Sorry. Hmm. Well, I don't Sorry, know. I didn't don't know didn't mean to uh, disrupt your flow there. <laughs> no, I'll know when I I'll know when I listen. Back okay. You're probably you're probably right. Yes. So they they had all of the legit you know costumes yes. and the and weaponry they and the, the <laughs> they do all of the actual reenactments yeah. as well so they they have someone playing and i was just they gonna say like guy. that guy who plays <laughs> andre the guy that plays trepanier the guy oh crazy mm-hmm. that would be i would like as much as like it's so easy to like mock and judge these like reenactments because they are kind of, like especially when you watch like civil war reenactments or things like that like it just looks like a bunch of grown-ups weirdly playing make-believe but there is something so fun like especially like the actor in me that would like love to participate in something like that like put me in the costume have someone pretend to bash me with an axe like I'm all in for that shit yeah and the difference to me is that this is like a story that has been so buried by history and there's still so much like I almost cried actually watching it because there's so much pain there still from you know all of these people descendants of slaves still have all of this generational trauma that has to be worked through and well, so and to watch I was gonna say that's why to me I almost got the energy of like a protest on steroids of that like that feel the the emotion the emotional energy coming off of everybody gave me that same kind of like intense feeling yeah. you know yeah and I like how he ended it you know he didn't he's like everybody knows that slavery was cruel and everybody knows that the things that were done to enslaved people was cruel and we don't need to end our two-day journey with this reenactment with what happened afterwards with with the brutality so instead of you know really highlighting the trials and the heads on spikes and like all of the things that happened afterwards. He hosted a giant celebration where they had African dancing and they had drums and they just really celebrated the fact that these people showed the fact that they had strength and agency um, that they desired for something different and better because in the South, there really is this revisionist history of the happy slave. Yeah. Right. Like, and it's important to note that like these people were not happy yeah. with their lives on the whole and they wanted something better for themselves and their children yes. and they fought for exactly. that. You know? And I think that having it be retold in a way of in, in the way of reenactment is really powerful because this story isn't very well known. So being able to watch that video because I was just reading about it, there aren't any full length documentaries about it. There isn't a real way to get like a full picture when you're reading all these different articles and you're piecing it together. So watching that and kind of see, feeling like I was watching it go down, it really helped me understand and put the whole the whole story into perspective and place and tie together and understand what really happened because 
you know, there there are a few books um, and different authors that I read about their research and how that's the reason why we have a lot of this information. But when people aren't picking up these historical texts and books, the best way to teach people about something is through art through media whether it be through a movie or a tv show Mm -hmm. or a reenactment where people can actually see it and witness it and experience it that's why we hold on to those stories because we have that sort of like memory of of it happening you know what i mean especially for the stories that don't have any sort of like real written history to be able to see it in some way uh helped have everything come together for me and it was such a beautiful beautiful video I'm sure being there was absolutely moving and unreal Uh, yes so I I think so I mean I love that area I would I'm serious Madigan I would love to go there with you like Max wants to take me to New Orleans because he wants he loves the food so he wants to take me there for all like the food stuff but Louisiana is a wild place (laughs) but it is it is. It's, it's it's unlike any other place in our country, um, but it is so. There's so much history yeah. there, and it's it's so fascinating. I've never to me. been and to the South. I've never been oof. anywhere in the South. Okay, well, Louisiana's. I mean, New Orleans in particular is different from other parts. Yeah, of the yeah. South, but um, it's it's very cool. I still have family there, and um, I just did. Just a side note for our listeners. I just sent in my 23 and me so i'm waiting to get my oh i want to do it get my results so back. bad i you, please you mm. have to you have to tell us your results when you get them oh 100 you have to. i 100 well i think i'll probably make a video and and release my results because you know that's that's part of it is when you we're gonna end this episode but <laughs> because it's the first week of Black History Month, and I feel like I try to highlight this every year because I think that it's something that people don't think about enough, Mm -hmm. is that part of the trauma and part of the heartbreak of the black experience in the United States is not knowing where you come from. And like really not having an understanding. People don't get it because they're just like, I don't understand why you're, you can say you're proud to be black or you're black power or any of these other things when I can't say that for being white. And it's because we don't, I don't know where my family came from in Africa. Yeah, yeah. I can't say I'm proud to be Nigerian or I'm proud to be Ugandan or Cameroonian. Exactly, yeah. Like I can't say that because I don't know. So all you are is black yeah. because you've had everything stripped away from your culture. So I'm very excited to get my, 23 and me back mm-hmm. I, I want to see like kind of like where in Africa did my dad's family yeah. come from oh, gosh um that's exciting yeah it, it's something that I feel like people definitely and when I say people I mean white people myself included take for granted because I had an archives account and I was able to go back and see you know some of my family history back to almost the 1600s you know it's pretty crazy mm-hmm. how I can just go online and find the names of these people um And I can say, you know, I'm proud to be Irish. I'm proud to be, you know, part Czechoslovakian. I'm a little French. You know, all of these things where it it wouldn't make sense for me to say I'm proud to be white. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like there's these different nationalities that I can tie myself to. And that's why it doesn't work both ways. You know, it just sounds... 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and yeah, obviously, I mean, it doesn't work to both ways to other way, for other reasons as because well. But. I, I understand, like, from my mom, for my mom, for example, like, our family, same. I, I was able to trace back the white side all the way back to the 1600s. So as far as my mom is concerned, she doesn't consider herself English or Welsh or anything else. She considers herself white American. You know what I mean? And from that perspective, I understand when people say, like, why can't I say I'm proud to be white? Well, you can say you're proud to be American yeah. because at that point, that's what you are. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Your, your family has been here for so long. I get that. White people have a very different stake in this country than any other group of people. So stating any sort of pride doesn't make any sense because you're already at the top of the totem pole. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't need to right. rub it in anybody else's face. We need to be lifting other people up. Right. <laughs> Right. You can be proud of who you are, but your skin color in particular doesn't have anything to do with it. Black people are the only ones who get to say that (laughs) because we have no idea. Yeah. It's why I always capitalize black when I'm talking about black. People ask me why I do that. I think. Um, And it's it's because if you were talking about somebody who was American Uh or Norwegian or anything else, you would capitalize that because it's it's. Who it's their national? I mean, not their nationality. It's their ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. For black people, black is our ethnicity. Definitely, like that is what it is. Yeah, I I remember um, reading an article about that when all the protests were happening over the summer. I started noticing it happening in different articles. I changed it on my phone um, so that it's automatically capitalized, and you know, different things like that. Um, Because I think it is important to have that be an active part of change in our culture to like even something as simple as capitalizing the B in the word black and acknowledging the fact that there is a whole separate um, like, I don't know, identity that's different than, you know, the white experience, you know, it's a different it is a different ethnic. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the thing that people don't don't understand is it's not it's not arrogance or, you know, misplaced pride or whatever you might no, think. No, it just you know, makes sense. That's stupid. <laughs> it's just, it, it just makes yeah. sense because I, we can't say anything else. What do you want me to say? Yeah. Like my ethnicity is, you know, black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. No, <laughs> I think. African American and American. Like that's it. I think that's always really important to, to bring up. So thank you for doing that. And I'm so excited to hear about your 23andMe results. Thank it's going to be, be fun. I can't wait till I can do that one day. I mean, I pretty much know what's going to happen, but like I would love to see all the ins and outs. I want to know all the medical stuff too. Like that's really fascinating totally, to me. Totally, totally, totally. Might uh, send me into a panic and making a doctor's appointment immediately, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, all right, everybody. Well, before I get into the usual spiel, I wanted to mention again that we are wanting to set up a Patreon and get some merch out to you all. So we would really love to hear your responses about different things that you would like to hear from us on the Patreon. And also what kind of merch you'd be into. What do you want to see? Are you into it at all? Uh, these are things that we are working on right now. So any sort of feedback from you is so important. We love to read it. We love to hear it. So please feel free to email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist and follow us there. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast. Y-A-N-F 
podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and chat with the other listeners on the group page and rate and review us on the business page. And then when you're done with that, go on over to Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already and leave us a review there. That is such an amazingly helpful way for you to support the show. So if you have not done so already, please, 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 please go over to Apple Podcasts and show your support. We will show our support right back by featuring you on our Instagram for Reviews Day Tuesday. Day. Am I forgetting anything? I don't think so. All right. I think that's all. That's all we got for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to raise on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.